Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark and it is 2020. Episode 117, 117, Mark Friday, January the 10th, 2020. And for those of you who didn't tweak, our last episode was a pre-recorded one. And that's why it went for over an hour, Mark, and we're back to our quick, snappy half-hour episodes with our new format, potentially, this week. How are you, Mark? I'm great, Brendan. It's a brand spanking new year, and despite... um you know, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the environmental things that are going on here in Australia. Um, we've had a good start to the year. It's been good with family over Christmas and, uh, and yeah, we've had a good one. Excellent. Well, I have in the freezer, Mark, I just remembered I've got to pull it out, a really big, a really big pudding, a Christmas pudding given to me from a, um, a friend who is a veterinarian who is... He makes a lot more money making puddings, put it this way, than being a veterinarian, <laughs> and he has done for many years. They're called Ray's Christmas Puddings, Mark, and it's a family business here in Melbourne and um, sort of high-end puddings. He does have a contract with some of the big supermarket chains, um, but they're, they're not cheap. You know, they start at about 40 or $50 Australian, Mark, and they go up to about 80 or or $100 for wow. the puddings. And they're fantastic puddings, and they try and source all – the ingredients locally and I think they spent a long try- time trying to find a local supplier for the Sultanas, Mark, um, in the puddings you know, over this last Christmas period because they could only um, – they finally tracked down one local one but most of the Sultanas that are coming in being used in puddings in Australia from overseas but they did manage to track one down and I did – I was getting the pudding at the – well, at a conference, Mark, the one day, as oh, you yes. do, at yep. the one day um, rabbit seminar that we spoke about at one stage, and um, his his wife um, came up to me. I've gone blank with her name. She's a she's a practice manager, or was a practice manager, um, and um, she um, said, "Hi, Brendan, how are you? Here's your Christmas present again." And she gave me the the um, the Christmas pudding, and um, yeah, I. I put it in the freezer you can refrigerate it for a few weeks or freeze it and i've frozen it and i need to pull it out and thaw it out and um boil it up mark i'm really looking forward to that because i'll tell you what they're amazing puddings so raise christmas puddings if you want a fantastic christmas pudding for anyone who comes down to victoria australia i've got to say how much i love the the way that that word rolls off your tongue brendan it's a it's just a great word to say isn't it pudding Pudding. Pudding. Yes. <laughs> it tastes good. Uh, I feel like I need to sleep after eating that pudding, Mark, or just, just contemplating it. So, yes, that's, um, that's I don't know how we got on to puddings, but yes, um, I think we need to chat about the. The big event that's been happened, happening and still happening here in Australia and that um, I think most of our listeners throughout the world, because it has hit the news the news items in in most um, countries, Mark, is the uh, fires, the bushfires here, and they call them wildfires overseas, but we call them bushfires, in, mainly in the eastern states here in Australia. And um, 
Gee, they have been They've pretty been ferocious, haven't they, Heartbreakingly ferocious, Brendan. They've, I do um, – it was about eight weeks ago I took a little trip out to the Capity Valley to look at some birds, and that was about the time the Gosper Mountain fire just lit up, um, and that particular fire has gone through um, – the biggest it's it's there's some people that now argue that it's the biggest uh wildfire bushfire that's ever been recorded in recorded history the area that it's covered um is just enormous and and not just the the you know that's one of the fires um the rest of the east coast all the way down to your part of the world and across to uh south australia and just today western australia is starting to light up um the the magnitude of the area that's uh being burnt is is unprecedented um but then to add to the actual area that's burnt there's um the intensity of the fires has been um has been well like nothing before it's uh not just um been a, um, a cool burn that's taken away some of the undergrowth there's whole swathes of habitat that are just uh, completely sterilized um, and some of the, the uh, wonderful spots kangaroo islands one that jumps to mind where um, there's a number of endangered species and, and i'm particularly yes. aware of the glossy black cockatoos on that island though um, the kangaroo island dunart um, is quite you know, there's a significant concern amongst ecologists that um, the last of that species was, uh, was that that they may have died in the fire, and we have a, a an extinction event on Kangaroo Island. I know that the Kangaroo Island subspecies of the glossy black cockatoo was down to 150 species, 150 individuals about 20 years ago, but a an intense. Um, conservation effort has got the population up to between six and eight hundred birds, um, but uh, the, the first reports out of Kangaroo Island after the fire on the weekend that went through there um, suggest that half those birds have died, and worse, um, all their feed trees have been cooked. Um, so there's literally for the three or four hundred birds that are left, there's no food. So uh, that story has been repeated over and over and over and over again before we get to um, the way that it's affected people, Brendan. Yes, absolutely. And I, I must admit I have been feeling proud of the response with the veterinary community and, and um, the vets and the nurses and the whole community Australia-wide, the way they've jumped in there and there's lots of um, lots of response um, to 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 that both on on the ground and um, with donations to help the animals and I think one of the estimates Mark from from a um, a semi 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 scientific estimate um, of the number of animals was half a billion animals that have um, potentially perished um, during these fires and the fires are ongoing and they will continue to burn um, some of them that they can't contain for for many more weeks and we will have a link on our on our pod pod site web website for the podcast um, vetgurus.com um, about the bushfires in Australia and we will um, mention and link to a couple of the relief organisations for any of our listeners who want to help out. Um, there's a couple of the organisations or three of them that will list there that um, um, are quite good at both providing support for humans and also um help for the animals there mark so um head over to vetgurus.com to do that so yes so um that's certainly been in our in our minds and our hearts over the last um few weeks and um 
you know, Canberra, the the Australian capital ter- territory um, in in Australia, our, our nation's capital city, had um, the worst air in the world um, for for several days um, at one stage. And gee, as I've mentioned before, Mark, I've done a bit of a tour of the um, most polluted cities <laughs> in the world, being in Delhi and um, in a couple of the cities in China, and it's not nice. And I've I have certainly noticed it um, locally here, and we can smell the smell smell the um, smoke um, over the last um, few days and few weeks um, here where we are. So, yeah, so everybody stay safe in Australia and, um, yeah, it would uh, be great if people donated to help out um, with the recovery, which is going to take a long period of time. So apart from that um, that um, bit of a downer there, Mark, um, we've just got a – but it is good to see people. It's amazing how, you know, humans are very good at coping once disaster happens, <laughs> aren't they? But they're hopeless at, at preventing it. Um, that's my my summary of the situation there. Um, I think we're going to jump – I haven't got a segue here, Mark, but we'll jump over to the one, one of the emails that we received um, recently from a student in um, – at Sydney University, Tristan, and his his email was, how good is a podcast? First impression is that it is sort of could have been champions meets veterinary medicine, loving it. And many of our listeners will have no idea what he means by the could have been champions. And that is a, well, basically a a satirist group, isn't it, of of, um, um, people who go on the radio here and they're sort of a for sport um, and mainly about the AFL, the Australian Football League, and they, they do send-ups about um, and just basically <laughs> do what we do. They talk crap except in a much more efficient way than we do, Mark. Um, so, yeah, thank you, Tristan, um, for that and a shout-out to you. And, um, yeah, keep mentioning us to your fellow students there, and I know he already has done that and he's recruited a couple of um, students to listen as well. So, yes, we love getting email from our listeners, Mark. So um, do you have anything more to sort of add before no, we I just um, I, I wanted to pat Tristan on the back because that's such an insightful, um, uh, you know, I think he's got a future in in uh, podcasting because he's cut to the chase there and said many were, said many ideas in just a few words, um, could have been champions uh, both doubles as a echo of that um, that group in Melbourne, that uh, uh, satirist group. But it also sums us up pretty well, Brendan. Could have been champions. Could have been decent veterinarians. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, well, I'm going to jump into the first news story, Mark. My one is, well, it's from the positive.news website, and I did mention a fair few podcasts ago that I was going to try and be a bit more positive with things, and we need a bit of positivity in our world at the moment here. And it it is a plan to save LA's mountain lions with a bridge, and officials in California are planning an $87 million bridge across a 10-lane highway. And I may, I have a bit of a feeling I may have mentioned this um, story in the past, Mark. Can you remember that or not? Um, so I'm going to keep going anyway. Um, a 10-lane highway to allow wildlife a safe crossing between sections of the Santa Monica mountain range close to LA. And it's mainly for the region's endangered mountain lions um, to allow them to roam and to breed. And a study published in 2019 found that they were at risk of extinction in Southern California within 50 years if they didn't diversify their genetic 
their, their genetics mark and they didn't breed basically. Um, and it's a pretty, uh, if you looked at this yeah. article, Mark, it's a pretty fancy little bridge there, isn't it? And I can see why it's going to cost them $87 million because, gee, it's a bit of a, well, it's an overpass, isn't it? It isn't an underpass, which a lot of the, um, a lot of the um, wildlife corridors tend to be with some of these little culverts and that that they make for wildlife going underneath roads. This is a big um, many laned highway that they're building a huge bridge over it. Um, it's now in its final design phase and it's slated for completion in 2023, which they'll probably be a bit more dead by then, Mark, <laughs> um, but um, that will offer any surviving animals safe passage across Highway 101. And they have received a reported $13 million US in private donations to help. Which is, which is good to see. So that's my positive, well, potentially positive, or I did a bit of a negative spin on the end. <laughs> We're there, not Mark. judging you for, um, well, yes, we are. We are judging you for how positive your stories are. But that, <laughs> that passes muster, Brendan. My story um, is uh, a, a bit of a report about um, why do parrots waste most of the food they get? Um, and and I, I was, like, immediately drawn to this because... Um, I do have to do a lot of cleaning up around the cages for the birds that we have in hospital, particularly the parrots, particularly the large parrots. Um, and we've got lorikeets and um, and uh, 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 cockatoos in hospital at the moment. And, and geez, they do waste a lot of food. Um, so it was interesting to see whether there was a reason for it. Was there a, um, you know, could some researchers identify a pattern of behaviour? Um I do, one of my favourite local birds um, is the yellow-tailed black cockatoo, which I see quite regularly here. And um, they do a hell of a lot of um, destructive work in the local eucalypt forest, forests, um, teasing out one of the beetle larvae that they find particularly delicious. Um, but they do I tell you what, they make a hell of a lot of damage to the trees that they uh, that they um, pull the lava out of. The interesting thing is that the lava have already damaged those trees, um, and so there's probably you know they're, they're probably not going to make it anyway. The parts of the tree that are pulled apart, but crackies, those beaks can do a lot of damage quickly. The upshot of the study, I was a bit disappointed, um, and I'm trying to be as positive as I can about this as well, Brendan. But it looks like they've done what is it? Uh, uh, it was a multi-year study where they looked at a number of possible aspects. They they get a, quite a few fancy graphs, but um, the, the conclusion is they can't figure out why parrots drop a whole lot of stuff as they're eating. Um, I think the best uh, theory going round is that um, is that the, uh, the, the the there's an abundance of food on the trees that they will eat usually, and um, and they're there, uh, there's a why is it evolution neurally occurred? I think is because um, it promotes forests. That the birds that have this behaviour are more likely to cultivate trees in subsequent generations that support the population. Birds that ate all the the um, the fruit and the and broke the nut and didn't have those trees in subsequent generations, they might not survive. So I think there is an evolutionary advantage to being a messy parrot. Um, I don't know that it's the best thing when they're in hospital. That's all I'm going to say about that, Brendan. Yes, they're messy, basically, <laughs> is what I got out of that um, 
that story, Mark. Um, they they like to make a mess and they like to make little things from big things um, is what um, I always like to say about um, parrots, yes. So they destroy stuff and they even destroy their food and just throw it around. It reminds me of a couple of times we've been out together, Mark, but we won't talk about those at the moment. That's for off air, yes. So, yes, thank you. Another positive story there, um, although it didn't really come up with a, a – a, um, a um, rock hard solution or a conclusion to the problem did it yes well i think we're going to move on and jump into our main story mark and that is sort of semi-related to to what's happening here with the um, bushfires here I, i thought a good topic this week mark would be burns in reptiles and um in pet reptiles in particular um so some of this can apply to those treating some of the reptiles that um, have been affected by the bushfires mark so but um i sort of thought we'd break it down to sort of three parts um how do they occur um in pet reptiles and how often do we see them what sort of signs do you see with the ones um apart from an obvious um severe burn that might um that you probably won't miss and um what are the treatment basics um as well as maybe touching on the prevention so do you see many of these, Mark? And um, how do you think um, we do see many quite of them a lot of them, Brendan? I would, I would hazard a guess that we, particularly in the summer months when the reptiles are more active, um, we, we would uh, it would be a couple of times a week we would have uh, a reptile that comes in with some form of burn, and they tend to they tend to occur um, through the 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 um the the whatever arrangement the owner has for heating the enclosure then there is generally some fault in that process um that results in the the uh in the reptiles getting burnt so we definitely see faulty electric electrical components um uh, things um not switching off not um uh uh, not the the thermostats not working to uh, cut them off at the appropriate temperatures um the hot rocks i i look i know that they are widely used um my experience with them with my own reptiles is that they don't provide a um an even temperature there does seem to be uh, focal points on the rock where the temperature is much hotter on many of them Um, and i'm generally speaking not a big fan of having them in enclosures and i do find um, that reptiles as a group um, they if they are not real good at identifying circumstances where they need to move away until it's way too late to move away. Um, and so if any of these things are just a little bit out of kilter, if the thermostat um, inadvertently is set to 45 or 50, um, then the reptiles won't necessarily like have a powerful aversion to the heat and they often stay there um, far too long and uh, and get into trouble with burns. Well... I can't really add much to that, Mark. I see exactly the same um, as far as we see a fair few of these and I do worry about those, you know, supposed hot rocks and those. Um, I, uh, as, as a general rule, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the underfloor 
um, type heat in with them um, because of that concern that they they sit themselves on these um, heating elements. And as you just mentioned, I think there there is some delay in the neural pathway compared with um, non-reptiles. Um, so with mammals, um, it, it's much quicker. And uh, off the top of my head, there is a paper that was um, published somewhere that did um, prove that reptiles, the response there of um, ouch, it, it hurts, um, is a lot slower um, getting from that that skin area to the brain and saying, look, get off that, that heat pad because you're burning yourself. Um, it is delayed compared with um, um, non-reptilian species. So um, as a general rule, I tend to recommend to clients that they use radiant heat, so heat from above or from um, on the side of the enclosure, um, rather than those um, underfloor heating and definitely those variations on those sort of heat mock rocks, those hot rocks and that. I've had bad experience with them many, many times with reptiles that have been severely burned from them, um, even even when the owners think that they have not, um, you know, um, been faulty, that they've still ended up um, burning the reptile. So I think getting back to the, well, um, jumping forward to prevention there, you know, one of the real key things we always stress to reptiles, and we've gone through this with basic reptile setup in previous podcasts, is the importance of, of making sure that... Um, clients know that know that they need to get a thermometer and do spot measurements around the whole enclosure and not just rely on hey my thermometer in the rep- in the vivarium is set at x degrees and um, they need to do spot readings to work out whether or not the the temperature is spiking at a level that we don't like um, and i think the episode that we covered enclosure heating in reptiles was episode 65 for those of you who want to go back and um, listen to that one mark so so yes um they occur unfortunately much more frequently than um than we'd hope or like mark or, or expect with them um so signs what what sort of signs do you see apart from the obviously um smell of a cooked reptile mark <laughs> The, the awful thing about these for me is that oftentimes that is the first thing that you see, that an area that's blistered, um, that, that often I, um, the, in, we don't get to see them at the time or immediately after the actual burn. It's only sometimes, you know, days later when the, the uh, changes to the skin occur that the owners can see um, that we end up seeing the animal. And, um, and so I think the, 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 that whole absence of um, of immediate discomfort works into this as well. I think the um, reptiles that have that sort of burn, um, they will stay in the one spot and they'll often, as we talked about, it's much more common for it to be associated with a under uh, some form of rock or under enclosure heating. So it's often on the ventral surface of the animal and unless someone's getting them out on a regular basis and, and uh, checking that area, it might not immediately be apparent that there is something wrong and they stay still for large periods of time. It's often very hard to appreciate a reptile in a vivarium is being less active than it normally would be um, because they, even when they're very active, many of these species are still very sedentary. So um, often the first sign we see is when they've got blistered, sometimes bleeding, um, depending on the extent, the depth, the degree of burn, um, that might well be the first sign we see. Absolutely. And then that, that client picks up the reptile because I think, gee, it, it's been a little bit quiet the last few days and or, or it skips a feed um, and they 
pull it out of the enclosure to have a little bit, bit of a poke around it and a look at it, and then they realise that it has a pretty nasty thermal burn there on the, on the ventrum with them. And I most commonly see the the burn, I see a lot of the burns in in well, primarily it's it's snakes that I'm seeing. The mark um, would be number one, and then. Um, lizards number two um, and I'm trying to recall whether or not I've seen any burns in any terrestrial chelonians I, I can't recall off the top of my head um, what sort of percentages do you see do you it see would the be, same sort of it would be very very similar Brendan it's process. predominantly the the um the snakes most of the lizards I think are um you know more mobile they're not as likely to sit in the one spot for as long and so um they're first of all less likely to um, to suffer those burns and secondly um, I think we're much more likely to see them at an early stage and be able to change things but definitely some of the most horrible ones I've seen have been associated with um, relatively large snakes. Yes so when they're presented to the clinic then I think we need to start thinking about the basics of the treatment there and the good news here is that it's no different than if we had a burn in any species and there's a few key factors to consider with that and the first one the one that we love um, always talking about Mark is analgesia and that's pain relief because unless that's a full degree thickness burn in that animal it's going to hurt and that's where we're reaching for our multimodal um, analgesic um, therapy there and using opiates as well as potentially maybe considering depending on depending on um, fluid loss and organ function we may be using um, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory that may provide some sort of analgesia, but we have to be a little bit careful about that, don't we? Definitely because of that potential for... Um, and one of the things about reptiles is that whole hydration status is... Um, it's much more labile. The, the range of hydration states under which reptiles can look relatively normal is a much wider um, gate than for the very uh, narrow, homeostatically tight mammals. And so um, by the time we have a clinically evident dehydrated reptile, they have really, really it's much more than 10%, um, which would be about the limit we see with most of our furry uh, companions. Um, so we are conscious of using non in those animals and we want to make sure that uh, we're not doing it in a situation where the kidneys are under stress, they probably make um, a bigger contribution to um, to the, the relief of pain and inflammation after the animal's been stabilised and we're confident that it's in a steady state of uh, normal hydration. Yes, so I think one of the challenges is how do we get some fluids into that animal that's that's um, not only compromised that it's it may be hard to find venous access to provide intravenous fluids for instance in a, in a snake that's compromised with a severe burn mark um, what's your take on or your approach to these sorts of cases how do we get the fluids into them What's the basics well, of that? it's a unique case, Brendan, and it's a very, very good point because with most of our um, our reptiles that are still that still have a normally functioning gut, um, we would we would try and get the fluid into them through their gastrointestinal tract. We'd provide them with easy access to drinking water um, and maybe supplementary. Um, uh, deliver some supplementary water through the digestive tract. Um, these guys are. are in pain, as we said, they're unlikely to be able to uh, maintain via drinking the 
the the massive increase in fluid loss that occurs because of the nature of burns. Um, and so we are regularly, if we can't gain intravenous access, um, then we are very frequently using intracelomic fluids to um, make to get the fluid in quickly and make sure that we maintain them in a hydrated state. Yes, well, guess what? We're exactly the same with our approach to them too, Mark, um, with those. And... and yeah, it's a it's a challenge, isn't it? I mean, I mean, the only other option there, if we were going to consider intravenous um, therapy, maybe um, a cut down over the jugular and um, put in an indwelling catheter there, Mark. But gee, I can't remember the last time I've done that for one of these cases there. Um, so we worry about pain relief. We worry about fluid loss. What else um, are the key factors you'd be thinking about to to control or consider um, treatment wise, Mark, for for a burnt? Well, there's reptile? probably two other main ones we want to think of in the first instance. The first one is um, uh, is antimicrobial therapy. We do want to think about, um, you know, the, the normal barriers to infection have been broken down. And many of these um, uh, reptiles, I when they come to us, um, they already have significant um, in, invasion of those damaged tissues by um, uh, often environmental organisms. And so I think antibiotics play an absolutely critical role in preventing that uh, progress from a burn to a, a systemic infection. Um, the second thing is that we've got to do some things to protect the tissue that um, as it uh, if it's unprotected, if the tissue is just left to its own devices, then eventually it'll dry out and become hard and and uh, and take a long time to heal, um, and more tissue will die than if we um, protect it at an early stage. What what is it that you do, Brendan, to protect the tissue? Um, do you have a particular pro a protocol or um, agent that you use to help protect the skin that's been burned? Yeah. It, it does sort of vary based on the individual, but we do use a lot of flamazine, um, silver um, sulfadiazine in, in these cases, Mark, but both as an anti an antibiosis um, and antibiotic agent and also um, basically have it smothered on there in a thick layer and then changing that regularly. Otherwise, um, you'd be using sort of um, um, occlusal dressings there, Mark, and changing it reasonably frequently. I mean, reptiles, you don't have to change dressings nowhere near as often as you would in a mammal, but you still need to do it fairly regularly, and that may initially mean changing at least once a day is what I would be doing in it. Um, is there any particular agent you No, use? we love the um, the flamazine as well. I, I um, As I understand it, that was its uh, the primary, um, you know, the reason it was developed yes. was as a burns treatment, and we certainly see it make a significant difference in the cases that we that we use it in. I do also, um, I know it, all our uh, listeners will already be across this, but it's really important to take that reptile uh, for anti microbial purposes to take it out of its enclosure and put it into um well if, if it stays in its enclosure to make sure that um you know it doesn't have um organic material as a substrate that you want to have a um a gentle um, paper towel or something along those lines that's going to provide a sterile substrate so that there's no uh, reinfection of that damaged tissue um that we've worked so hard to protect with the flamazine yes yes well Guess what? We're on the same page as usual. <laughs> um, so, um, 
the next step, I think, with with them, um, once you have the the fluids on board and the pain relief on board and the antibiotics on board, and you're protecting that tissue, is to obviously what you do with any other any other condition, you're monitoring them regularly, and that's where you'd be looking at um, the concerns about potentially organ failure um, down the track and, and and monitoring with blood screens, etc. Um, but one of the sort of um, specific things that we we or I see reasonably um, commonly in, in snakes marked with severe burns is, is the difficulty of dealing with scar tissue once that um, burn has um, resolved and um, the scar is contracting. Do you have oh, issues you, with that? It's almost eerie how similar our problems and solutions are, Brendan. Um, and it, I mean, it makes sense that the snakes are that long tubular design. Snakes in particular, we find that um, that uh, those um, ventral scales that go across um, and protect their body um, will have some of those ones with burns that completely lose a whole series of those. Um, and they will heal, um, particularly if the body cavity is not breached. They heal quite well, but there will be a significant constriction um, and uh, that can um, play a big role in, you know, even allowing the animal to eat or move um, subsequently. And so I think uh, all that we can do that limits the formation of that um, scar tissue and limits the development of constriction, um, it's, it's absolutely critical to the long-term outcome. Yes, um, and unfortunately, no matter what you do with some of them, it's so severe that we do, or I've, I've had a fair number of cases where I've had to end up doing relieving surgery there where we're, we're basically... Um, well, we're basically relieving that that scar tissue and and surgically opening it up and just try, almost like doing a a um, a relieving flap on some of them. Mark, um, um, I haven't, re- I can't remember the last case where I've actually done a, a rotating flap on a snake or a reptile with 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 a full skin thickness loss. Although I have seen some reports of that being done in the literature, and I think. Somebody did a case report at one of our previous conferences about using um, um, allografts um, in reptiles, if I remember correctly. Um, but, but yeah, it's not not rare to have to down the track once that snake has recovered. We have a pretty nasty scar that, that's constricting that animal, especially especially as you said with with those snakes where you might have a circum circumferential um, scar there that's constricting that snake and you have to relieve that pressure there and relieve the scar there. And I don't think it's anything too fancy as far as the surgery. Well, certainly when I do it, Mark, um, it's just trying to relieve that scar and um, allow um, for some um, tension to be relieved in. Then, Do you have any tips for that particular surgery? No, nothing that you haven't mentioned except to say um, that, um, that I think We've been looking at, um, there's been a number of published reports about those allografts, um, you know, the, the uh, um, particularly fish skin has been used in a number of human burns patients to maintain the dimensions of the skin and allow healing to occur. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised that we see more and more of that amongst our pets and it may well be um, something that we can use in our reptiles. I think that what that's at that tilapia is it um, the tilapia fish exactly. skin yeah yes well gee we've got through that pretty quickly and um, hopefully uh, we've had a bit of feedback Mark about the um, the um, 
the quicker podcast or the shorter podcast and um, the theory behind it was that a lot of people like to listen to our podcast in the car on the way to or from work or to or from their calls um, with some of the some of the um, rural practitioners and um, it gives them a chance to listen to the whole podcast without having to sit in the car at the um, at the clinic um, and play the rest of it because they wanted to listen to the end of it. Um, although we have had a couple of people email us and say they like the one-hour podcast. So I suppose you can't please all the people all the time, can you, Mark? Um, but we listen to our listeners and um, – we just ignore them. So we will talk to you all next week and don't forget to think about donating to the Bushfire Appeals here in Australia. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.